Okay, you ready? You can hear me okay? Great, we're on? Perfect. Awesome. Let's go. I'm Peter Little, lead pastor at Christ Pacific Church in Huntington Beach, California. We're cultivating a community of faith, hope, and love that follows Jesus into the world. And you're listening to our Sunday Sermons podcast. To learn more about us or to subscribe to this podcast, visit us at cpchb.org. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Jim, for reading the good news of Jesus Christ today. It's a particularly good voice for today's reading, isn't it? Speaking of uh, voices and sounds of today's worship, um, I can't hear right now, but it was going on earlier. Um, there were uh, a number of jackhammers in the background doing a little bit of demo work, which I thought, oh, it's part of worshiping outside and the joys of uh, being out here. And then I was a little bit annoyed, but then I was like, you know what, God? You are doing a work of reconstruction in us, aren't you? So I want to invite you, if you hear those uh, jackhammers at any point, uh, rather than being annoyed, as I was at first, to uh, thank the living God for the reminder of his reconstruction project that he's doing in your hearts and in our lives. Amen? Amen. It's good. It's great. Uh, don't you love seeing all those kids heading over there for Kids Church, too? So good. That's great. Uh, it is the most important question that has ever been asked. Fleming Rutledge has said that this saying from the cross is the one to have if you're only going to have one. This saying from the cross is the only saying of Jesus that is recorded in two Gospels, both in Mark and in Matthew. We heard Matthew's version today. It's the most terrible question that has ever been asked because this question presupposes something that's very uncomfortable for us, that God would turn his face away from God's own son. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The most important and the most terrible question ever asked. Why, God? And you know, it's the why questions that are the most difficult, aren't they? For those of you who have children, right, it's the why questions. When does this start? About three years old? Why? The how questions are much simpler. The when questions, the what questions, much simpler. But we want to know why. These are the most challenging questions. Just as a side note, this is why, huh, there it is, this is why, for example, the creation account in Genesis 1 through 3, it's why it's so powerful. Because the creation account given to us in Genesis seeks to answer the why questions. The most important and also the most difficult questions. Why are we here? Why did God create all of this anyway? And why does your life matter? These are the important questions of life. And these are the questions that Genesis seeks to answer. By the way, again, just as a side note, you may notice that Genesis 1 through 3 doesn't do a particularly good job at answering the same questions that your high school biology textbook asks. Because it's just not 
as interested. Genesis is not as interested in the questions of how and when and what. Genesis is getting at the why questions. Why does this matter? Also the who question, who done it? Why? These are the most important and also challenging questions for us. And as we look into this question that Jesus asked, his why question, we're going to get a window into his heart. We're going to see a bit more clearly what Jesus really cared about, what he desired most in this moment. It's common for those who are in their final days of life, for final weeks, knowing that there is, a, is an end that is nearby. It's common for those in that situation to really focus on what matters. It becomes very clear what doesn't matter so much in life when you are facing the last moments of your life. And perhaps it's no different for Jesus. So here he is in the last, the final moments of his earthly life before he dies on the cross. And in his final prayers, in his final words, he expresses his deepest desires, his deepest concerns. And today I want to ask a couple of questions about Jesus' question. The first question I want us to ask you won't be surprised, begins with the word why. Why? Why did Jesus ask that question? And then the second question I want to ask about Jesus' question is, what is the answer to Jesus' question? So it's another why question. Why, God, did you forsake Jesus, your son? So that's where we're headed today. A couple of questions about Jesus' question, which is the most important and maybe terrible question that has ever been asked. So let's pray that God would prepare us to hear. Well, gracious and living God, we thank you that you are a God who speaks. Thank you that you have spoken clearly and authoritatively through your word. We ask now as we consider your word that you would speak to us afresh and that you would help us to understand why Jesus asked this question and why it matters. And then understanding that we would then begin to more and more enter into the reality to which these words point. For we want to be, we desire to be people shaped by your word. Shape us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes this question that Jesus asks, why, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, that question is referred to as Jesus' cry of dereliction. And in Jesus' cry of dereliction, he shows us that he identifies with us in our suffering. Jesus is quoting the opening lines of Psalm 22. And many people think that Jesus probably had the whole psalm in mind when he quoted the first verse. Listen to Psalm 22 and imagine like this was what was going on in Jesus' mind as he asked that terrible question. Why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? From the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. 
Can you feel Jesus' pain and anguish there? My God, where are you? I pray and you don't answer. Have you been there? Can you relate to Jesus? I pray, God, and, and you don't answer. Where are you, God? Psalm 22 goes on to talk about how the Lord has delivered other people who called out to, to him. So why not deliver him, the psalmist? And Jesus identifies with the psalmist. In other words, Jesus is saying, look, God, other people, others have cried out to you for help and you have showed up. You've delivered them. You've answered their prayer. Why won't you answer my prayer? Why won't you deliver me? Why, my God, have you turned your face away? Have you been there? Can you relate to Jesus here? You know, God, it seems like those other people, like they pray and you answer them. How come you're not answering me, God? Jesus identifies with your suffering. Jesus identifies with your situation. Jesus has been there. He gets it. You know, he's been there. He's done that. He's got the t-shirt. He knows what it's like to be you. This is how Hebrews helps us understand Jesus' identification with our suffering. Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest, that's Jesus, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. He gets it. Jesus has been there. He understands he knows. He's experienced what you are going through. But did God really forsake Jesus? Because that's uncomfortable, isn't it? And that discomfort has led some to conclude that when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not because Jesus actually was forsaken by the living God, but that he felt forsaken by God. Jesus perceived that he was forsaken, and perception is reality for the one who perceives it, right? But it wasn't that God actually forsook Jesus. It's just that Jesus really felt as though God had forsaken him. This is how some have tried to smooth over the discomfort that this question gives us that God would actually turn his face away from his son, Jesus. Jesus cried out, why God? Not because of a feeling he had, not because of a feeling of forsakenness that he had, but because of a reality he was experiencing. Jesus was forsaken by God at the cross. The British hymnist Stuart Townsend put it well in this hymn he wrote in 1995. We've sung this many times here uh, and uh, uh, some other hymns that he has written as well. This song called How Deep the Father's Love for Us goes like this. How great the pain of searing loss. The father turns his face away. There it is. The father turns his face away. Dean alluded to this last week when he talked about the physical pain of the crucifixion. 
That the physical pain of the thorns being pressed into Jesus' forehead and, and the whip tearing flesh from Jesus' back and the nails being driven through his wrists, as excruciating as that was, it wasn't particularly noteworthy because thousands of people were being crucified by the Roman military machine. This was not an uncommon experience. The great pain and searing loss and uniqueness that Jesus experienced on the cross wasn't the nails, it wasn't the crown of thorns, it was the Father's face turned away. That's the searing loss that Jesus experiences. The Father's face turned away. In Luke's gospel, chapter 9, verse 51 marks a turning point. The first half of Luke's gospel comes before 951. The second half comes after chapter 9, verse 51. Here's how the verse reads. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, that is, taken up to the cross, when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. This marks the beginning of Jesus' march toward the cross in Jerusalem. Jesus resolutely made his way to the cross. That was his destiny. That was his cup. That was his mission to which he turned his face. Even though Jesus knew that turning his face toward the cross meant that the Father would turn his face away. But you could say... Jesus believed that it was worth it. That you were worth it. Jesus knew what the British hymnist would go on to say in that hymn, how deep the Father's love for us. Listen, how great the pain of searing loss, the Father turns his face away. Why? As wounds which marred the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Bring many sons to glory. Jesus endured the searing loss because of his love for his daughters and sons like you and me who would draw near to the living God who's drawn near to us. That is glory. That the living God would draw near to us. To speak about Jesus' resoluteness is to speak about his faith. Jesus demonstrates the most robust faith we can imagine in the most difficult circumstances. My God, my God, he cries out. This is a statement of faith. My God, my God. It's intimate, it's personal, it's relational. Jesus is reflecting the kind of covenantal language that is scattered all throughout the Old Testament. This language where God says, you will be my people and I will be your God. I will be your God. Jesus cries out, my God, my God. Even as Jesus experienced the father turning his face away, Jesus cries out in faith. My God, my God. Listen to how a 19th century Scottish preacher compares Jesus' faith to Jonah's faith. This is great. Listen to this. He writes, Jonah showed great faith 
You know, remember Jonah, the prophet who was swallowed by a whale? Jonah showed great faith. He was literally at the bottom of the sea when he prayed, All thy billows and thy waves passed over me, yet I will look to thy holy temple. That's faith. Jonah praying at the bottom of the sea. God, I'm going to trust in you. Ah, but one greater than Jonah is here. Christ was now beneath a deeper sea than that which covered Jonah. Jesus was under the sea of God's wrath. He was in outer darkness. He was in hell. And yet, Jesus believed the word of God. Dear believer, this is your assurance. The preacher goes on, you are often unbelieving and distrustful of God. But behold your surety in Jesus. He never distrusted. He never disobeyed, even in hell. So cling to him. You are complete in him. And I want to say, preach it, brother. So Jesus resolutely turned his face toward the cross in Jerusalem. And on that Jerusalem cross, the father turned his face away, forsaking God's own son. Why? Why did he do that? What is the answer to Jesus' question? God, why did you forsake Jesus? Well, what happened at the moment of Jesus' death? When he breathed his last. Verse 50 and 51. Then Jesus cried again with a loud voice and breathed his last. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Uh, Doesn't that seem like kind of a random detail that would be included from top to bottom? I mean, there's so many details that are not included, right? That you want to know, like... So much going on here that isn't actually recorded. So why this random detail of precisely how the veil or the curtain was rent in two from top to bottom? Well, that curtain is the curtain that closed off what's called the Holy of Holies. It's a curtain that separated the most holy part of the temple, which was in the very middle, from the rest of the temple. The Holy of Holies was the center that symbolized God's holy presence. And it was such sacred ground that it needed to be blocked off so that people who were unholy would not come in because holiness and unholiness don't mix. And so this curtain. There was one person who once a year was entered to permit the Holy of Holies. It was the high priest on Yom Kippur, when he would go and he would ask for forgiveness for the people of God. That was it. One guy, once a year. Otherwise, the Holy of Holies was blocked off, was barricaded, so that the people of God could not be in the holy presence of the living God. That curtain in the temple was the physical barrier that both symbolized and then also enforced separation. Separation between the holy presence of God and unholy people like you and me. And that barrier, we're told, was torn apart from top to bottom. From God's side to our side. Not from the bottom up. There's no more separation. There's no more barrier. You see, the barrier of sin was erected by you and me from the bottom up. 
But in Jesus Christ, at his death, God removes the barrier from the top to the bottom. There was no way to tear that curtain from the bottom up. There was no way that we could make our way into God's holy presence on our own. God had to do it, and he did it from the top to the bottom. Why was it torn apart? Why was it torn apart at Jesus' death? Well, John the Baptist had been telling us all along. When John the Baptist first saw Jesus approaching him at the river, John says, behold, there he is, the Lamb of God, who does what? Who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The sin of the world. My sin. Your sin. All the sin. It's taken away. All the sin taken away. Not, not set to the side. Not temporarily displaced. Taken away. Not hidden or minimized or pretending like it's not actually there, but taken away. The sin of the world taken away. And if our sin is taken away, then there's no more separation because it's that sin barrier that we built from the bottom up that separates us from the living God. But that's been taken away. The Lamb of God has taken away our sin by taking it upon himself. And that's why the curtain was torn from top to bottom. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who rends the curtain apart from top to bottom so that neither curtain nor hardship nor distress nor persecution nor famine nor nakedness nor peril nor sword nor anything else in all of creation would now be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And this is what the Lord is after. Nearness to you. This is what is on, the, on God's heart. This is what he wants most. The Lord really is Emmanuel, God with us. God turned his face away from Jesus at the cross, forsook him because Jesus had taken upon himself the sin of the world. And the holy God... And the sin of the world don't cohabitate. They can't coexist. They are mutually exclusive. A perfectly holy God has nothing to do with sin. And so a perfectly holy God turned his face away from the sin of the world that was upon Jesus. Because he knew that this was the way. This was the only way that you and I could have union with him, could have fellowship with him, could have nearness with the living God. So the answer to Jesus' question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The answer to his question is because of you, for you. Jesus was forsaken at the cross because of you. God did it to be in a relationship with you. This is what is on the heart of God, nearness to you, relationship with you. So again, Jesus turned his face toward the cross where he would take away the sin of the world. And on the cross, God turned his face away from God's son, Jesus. So that now, God's face might shine upon you and give you peace. So that now you can be in a face-to-face -face relationship with the living God. This is is what Jesus desires most. 
when he cries out in anguish from the cross. It's worth it to him because he wants more than anything for you to enjoy a relationship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And it turns out that's what the human heart desires most as well. So thank you, God, for granting us the desires of our hearts. Nearness to you. Relationship with you. Because of what Jesus did on the cross. It is the most important and the most terrible question ever asked. Because when we plumb its depths, we discover the very character of God. A God who stops short at nothing to be with us. Dean's going to come and pray for us. Good morning, friends. Would you join me in prayer? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the promise in your word that you will never leave us nor forsake us. And thank you for sending your son who experienced for us this God forsakenness so that you might fulfill that promise forever. Lord, this morning, help us to celebrate, to trust in that promise that we are made yours and you are with us, that we call you our God and you say that we are part of your people. But Lord, we don't always experience that. We experience an absence at times. We don't know where you're at. And so friends, if you're at that place, I invite you to cry out to God, say, God, where are you? Show yourself. Make yourself known, please, Lord. Your mercy, your power. Maybe your heart needs some reconstructing right now. Maybe it needs some work. Maybe it's hardened. Maybe it's broken. Maybe it's hurting. Lord, meet us where we're at. Just as you met Jesus and brought resurrection, new life, new power, we ask that you would do the same for us, that you would show up with your resurrection, life, and power and renew us. Lord, if we call Jesus our Lord and Savior, we're already in union with him. We already have that power through the Holy Spirit with us. So we ask that you would pour it out, Lord. And friends, if you're at home watching or here on campus and you've never said yes to Jesus, you can do that now. You can say, Jesus, I want you to be my forever friend, to be my Lord, my master, my king. I want to have this with God life that I've been hearing about. And if you've said yes to Jesus for the first time, talk to another follower of Jesus. Talk to me. Talk to Pastor Peter. Lord, we, we want all those who say yes to Jesus to be part of your people. And so you're invited to do that. We thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. And we come, Lord, to worship you now uh, once again in song, in truth, and in joy. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining our Christ Pacific Sunday Sermon Podcast. To hear more of our sermons, or to subscribe, or to learn how you can be engaged with what we're up to in Huntington Beach, please visit us at C.